This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over. And Mona Awad is the author of 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl and Bunny and All's Well. And there's a new novel called Rouge. And if you've read Mona before, you know you're in for something that's really kind of a treat. <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to having this conversation with you. And if you haven't, well, I hope you'll stick around because we're going to have a really interesting conversation about beauty and a lot of other things. But anyway, Mona, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> so when did you start writing Rouge? Because I feel like, you know, Belle, we've seen echoes of Belle mm-hmm. in earlier narrators. Yes. Yeah, no, definitely. I started working on Rouge when I was uh, touring for Bunny, um, which is my, my second book. And I just became really addicted to skincare videos on the internet. I couldn't stop watching them. Um, and it felt really dark. <laughs> it just felt like I, I had to unpack that, you know? <laughs> I get it. But also book tours, I think there's this perception that book tours are kind of, you know, glamorous, fun things where you swan around in fancy clothes yeah. and meet you know, hundreds and thousands of readers all the time. And um, the reality of book tours is sometimes you're looking for a pretzel in your pocket and you're just like, great. (laughs) Having been a publicist running around with authors on tour and having produced events for BNN, like sometimes really you're just excited if you can grab like a bag of potato chips somewhere before you have to talk to people because it's, I can... I can see watching a lot of skincare videos. Yeah, I was watching uh, so many. I couldn't stop. And I got really on on that tour. Um, and then at home later, I just uh, started buying all these products that I couldn't afford and that I didn't understand. Um, I didn't even know how to apply them properly or in what order. And there's an order. And, you know, I just, but I was a total sucker for it all. And I didn't understand it. So, yeah, it was power. It was powerful. It was a powerful time. <laughs> yeah. And it also says so much, if you look at how the advertising has changed, right, for skincare and everything else, it says so much, too, about how we're aging and not aging and how we're not willing to act our age or look our age. And it's wild because, I mean, listen, I have plenty of fancy things, some of which I really like and some of which I laugh when I see it. And just like, what was I not thinking? And we all do it, but it's really kind of fraught territory in a lot of ways right like there's some stuff where i'm like okay i spend a lot of time on planes i believe in moisturizer now and sunscreen has always been a thing and it's wild that those words even come out of my mouth i know i know i know i i was i really discovered sun sun care very very recently like i i'm i'm so now i'm i'm really really into it and that might be the thing that stuck out of out of everything that I I kind of subjected myself to while I was working on rouge, the sunscreen has has stuck because it's 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 good stuff. You can't you can't argue with it. It's true. It's totally true. But part of what I love about rouge, and for me, it was a really quick read. Yeah. Oh, very good. propulsive. Did not want to put it down. Was actually a little annoyed when I had to do things like empty the dishwasher and you know live my life. Belle is a really intriguing woman, and again, there are sort of echoes. Mm-hmm of Elizabeth a little bit with sort of yeah. the changes and the outsider status. And then there's a little bit too of all's well, where it's just like, you know, Belle's pain is really, but she's grieving. Her mother has died. And yeah. grief is kind of the original invisible 
wound, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So in some ways, it makes total sense that she would be obsessed with the mm. surface, right? right? In order to just, in order to cope, um, but maybe also in order to just, to, to just avoid too. She's a, a very, in some ways, a really innocent soul, maybe yeah. more than any of my other narrators. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that actually. Is Belle the first character who showed up for you or did you sort of know what you wanted to play the scope of what you wanted to play with oh that's a great question she was so interesting because at first I could only see her from the outside and normally um when I start writing a novel the first thing that happens is I hear a voice uh -huh. it's a very very strong voice and it's the voice of the of the of the main character okay um but with Belle I saw her before I heard her. So I thought that was really interesting because this is a character who has a lot of walls. Mm -hmm. um, she's got a lot of shields. She's literally covered in 5 million layers of serum <laughs> and hiding behind big sunglasses. And so, um, so yeah, so she was kind of a mystery to me, but she definitely, she was the first thing that I saw. It was her, just her moving through the world in, in a lot of denial. And you take her out of Montreal. Yeah, and you yeah. Stick her in very bright, very sunny San Diego, <laughs> or yeah. I should say, just outside of San Diego, just a tiny bit yeah. outside of San Diego, right on the beach. You physically put her in a place where she would not have chosen to be, and this is her mother's apartment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a uh, it's a really fraught place for her. It's. Mm -hmm. Right on the edge of the literal abyss, the ocean, the first mirror. And yeah, it's really haunted territory for her. She is she is not someone who enjoys the sun. She has learned from her mother to loathe and fear the sun. <laughs> so so yeah, for her, San Diego, it's the beginning of a gothic story. Right. Um, you know? A very sunny, sunshiny gothic story, which is part of the fun of Rouge. It really is. I mean, the things that you do... And the thing that the things that Belle decides to do, but also the stories she tells us about her past. I mean, she and her mother didn't have the easiest relationship. You build in some fairy tale narrative. I mean, there's do we call it a haunted mirror? Yeah, no, we definitely do. I mean, th that is that is the thing about Snow White, and this story mm -hmm. is, is definitely playing with Snow White. It's a Snow White story at its core. I love that about Snow White. I love right. that mystery between the mother and the mirror and who is really speaking is there really something there in the glass or is it just her shadow self talking to her i really wanted to to have fun with that in this book i also had a moment too where i was like how much of the beauty and the beast is going to be i mean obviously with bell and her name i was just kind of like well there's a little bit of this as well and it's sort of that tumbly mix of fairy tales as we were sort of told them right. and then the reality and if you've ever read the unexpurgated fairy know. tales that they were really tools to make sure people behaved yes and made specific kinds of choices they're really ruthless and quite gross actually yeah no they really really are i mean that original beauty and the beast is like a it's a it's a basically a, a book on 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 how to be you know a moral young woman you know mm -hmm. <laughs> like, 
and and move through the world in a moral way. So yeah, Beauty and the Beast is 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 very disturbing. Um, and definitely, I was thinking about that story too. Mm-hmm. I think I, I've I've loved working with fairy tales for so long because I just love how they use fantasy to depict very very real emotional right. realities that we all go through. But they use the fantastic to do that in a way that really resonates. You know, beauty is magical. So it just felt like, of course, fairy tales are going to come into this book because I'm writing about the dark side of beauty. You know, well, that and style because Belle's yeah. mother. Okay, there's a pair of red shoes. <laughs> <laughs> a pair of red shoes that pops up every now and again. And I'm trying really not to spoil anything. But, you know, obviously, if you've done the reading, there are references that you will immediately see and oh, yeah. maybe your eyes will get big the way mine did. But. Belle's mother is impossibly stylish and really has built her own life. And yet it's not enough. No, it's really not enough. And she sort of kicks off the whole thing. Well, obviously she kicks off the whole thing by dying, but there is a backstory that Belle is going to get pulled into. So did you know though, that you needed Belle's mom to make this story work? Because I feel like there's kind of a generational piece that goes into the beauty and the physical, you know, the way you dress and the way you carry yourself and all of these things that you kind of need a little bit of an age gap yeah, to have the yeah. contrast. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's the thing about that Snow White that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. There is that, it's that, that psychodrama between the mother and the daughter, yeah. you know, um, all of this tension, all of this unspoken stuff, all of this love, but all of these thorns too, right? Mm-hmm. Belle's mother is so stylish. Noelle is so stylish. And she's such a mystery to Belle. She's like Mm -hmm. the way that, you know, your mother is is kind of magical and mythic to you, you know, you're a kid. And Noelle, her mother, especially because she totally embraced the whole cult of beauty, the whole cult of style, which Belle now, yeah, she's inherited that longing, that desire. So for her, her whole life kind of turns into that pursuit, too, because it was her mother's pursuit. Yeah. And yet Belle doesn't quite have all that it takes to live that kind of life. And part of me thinks she genuinely doesn't want it. And part of me is thinking that this is the grief really driving her to connect with her mom because her mom has died and she doesn't know how to process it. Because there's some choices she makes where I'm like, you know... I think that's the grief. (laughs) I really think that's the grief. But you do, and you've done this across the books, but especially in Rouge, you have a way of using language to represent memory and transformation in ways that are really tricky and really smart and propulsive, which again, you don't always get in this kind. I mean, you're doing a lot. Yeah, in this book, but I really do want to talk about language because I feel like you're one of those people who works at the sentence level, and if the sentence is not working, something happens, and and whether that's an edit or you walk away for a moment and come back. But can we talk about language and craft for a second? Yeah, of course, of course. For me, it's it's all about getting that voice right. I just need mm-hmm. to that voice. Uh, you know, in some ways, it's like it's very method. I have to believe that character. Otherwise, I can't go on that crazy journey with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I can't go on the wild ride if I don't believe, you know. Um, 
So getting the voice right is important and language is a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. It's, um, making sure that I understand every aspect of this character's consciousness. And this is a character who's, you know, she's like all of us. She's buried a lot of stuff right. that she is living with. It's informing the way that she talks to people, the way that she interfaces, but she doesn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had to find ways to show in the language that that's happening so that the reader knows the reader has a bit of a clue and is maybe a little, a little uh, worried for her as they should be. <laughs> oh no, definitely was worried for her, but also really liked puzzling out yeah. because for instance, there's a handyman who worked for her mom who I was very suspicious of at first. I have to say, like, I really, I was kind of like this, dude, mm, this is not yeah. going to be Tad. I do not like you. I don't know why you're here. This is weird. Hot. He's hot though. Uh, yeah, well, and hot is good. Hot's good. But it, it's all good, but I still, I had a moment of, mm, Yeah. And yet, we do see the evolution. <laughs> Not just of Belle's relationship, but also sort of his relationship with her mom and, and his relationship with the world around him. And I don't think I'm really spoiling anything by saying, because it's made pretty clear pretty quickly that my suspicious take yeah. On the dude in the living room. Yeah. Was in fact, not right. But yeah. I do love puzzling that out and sort of connecting Belle's interpretation of things to his, or when Belle is telling her story yeah. of her childhood and, whatnot, and sort of piecing it together and, and comparing it. Yeah. What yeah. other people have said to Belle, because she's really complicated, but she misses a lot. I think, oh. is, you know, she misses a lot. And, and everyone's unreliable. I'm not. I'm yeah, not anyone is an oracle of wisdom that Belle isn't, but she's mm-hmm. unreliable in a way that made me really need to know how this was all going to end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was interesting for me because you know, in in previous novels, mm-hmm. in All's Well, in Bunny, even in Thirteen Ways, there's a character who's usually um, functioning in some ways to sort of clue clue the narrator in you yeah. know just signal hey <laughs> now, the way that you're seeing the world uh it may not be exactly the way that the world is you know but i really wanted to make bell more alone because she is at a very fundamental level this is a character who's very isolated which is why she's so vulnerable um to this cult yeah and to the whole the whole proposition of of beauty She's more vulnerable because she is so isolated. Mm-hmm. So these characters in in her world that she's encountering, like mm-hmm. her mother's boyfriend and um, you know the the new dress shop owner, you know yeah. her a dress shop, and now now there's a new owner. They're actually she perceives them as threats. Yeah, you know, um, and whether they are or not, well, the reader's not sure because the reader is only looking at this world through Belle's eyes. Yeah, and it's a world where everybody is a little bit of a threat. The setting, I mean, anyone who's read Bunny knows that there's a cinematic feel to Bunny that's that goes back to, you know, Heathers and the craft in movies like that. Tom Cruise has a little bit of a role <laughs> yes. in Rouge. And I'm laughing about well, it because when I realized what you were doing, and also you kept calling out the Snaggletooth, which <laughs> was very funny. Tom Cruise has a role, but also there's a little bit of Eyes Wide Shut too, which I did see in the movie theater and I can't tell you a single, like I remember none of it. And yeah. I do remember being a little bored, which says more about me than the film. 
And Kubrick fans, please, it, that yeah. says way more about me than the movie. But I was laughing when I realized what you were putting together. And I'm just wondering if we can talk about some of the pop culture influences that also flow into this book outside of the YouTube skincare videos. And yeah, I mean, Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you you need to be in the right mood for a Kubrick film. Like right. first, just right. It, you just need to be in the mood. Um, and Eyes Wide Shut is in many ways, it's it's an ask, you know, it's an ask of its viewer. It definitely, definitely did inform Rouge just in terms of the mood of it, the atmospherics of it, the cultiness of it, of course, and the Tom Cruise of it, of course, because <laughs> I, I knew very, very early on, Tom Cruise was kind of an instinctive choice that I made. I knew he was going to play a big role in the book before I even understood why. Um, and it was only later that I understood just how perfect it was. I don't think this is too much of a giveaway. The 80s plays a bit of a role. because oh, yes, it does. Yeah, so we do revisit um, the narrator's childhood. And her childhood is in the 80s, um, the surface-obsessed 80s. And both she and her mother worship cinema. You know, the movies are like another kind of mirror to these beauty-obsessed women. And um, who better to be emblematic of a kind of cinematic beauty than Tom Cruise at the time. And I love, I love that his last name is Cruise um, and that there's just so much water in the book, of course. So it all kind of seemed seemed to work. And, you know, she becomes obsessed with the movies. The movies are worthy of such obsession. I love the movies too. I had a crush on Tom Cruise when I was a kid. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a tribute to that, maybe. He was one of those instinctive choices. It just turned out to just work so perfectly for the novel that it was actually almost frightening. Like it was, it, it was almost frightening just how perfect he he ended up being for the book. And I I love I love the tooth. I knew we were in for something a little different, partially because of the tooth. It's a weird detail to pull out, right? Like it's a fun detail, but it's a weird detail. And I was like, okay, yes, we have the beauty. Yes, we have the charisma. Yes, we have all of the parts but we're not going to lose sight of the fact that we need all of the parts to make this work and that includes the snackle tooth and right right right. that's exactly right and um and you know the music is so perfect i listened to a lot of it when i was working when i was working on the book i mean i i have to say like the last hundred pages were almost entirely written to uh the dream is always the same (laughs) just on constant repeat uh, from risky business, so it completely like infuses the whole world of Rouge, um, and it just makes sense. I mean, you could also argue too that the '80s are sort of the starting point of the moment we re- like. They are actually genuinely the starting point for the moment we're in now. Yeah, and that all of the work that had come before sort of got blown up in a moment where suddenly it was you know cell phones the size of a brick, yeah. and you know yuppies and all of these things, and suddenly. We had, you know, American Psycho, and it, yes. you know, it, it really like if oh. you look at where we are right now, there is a direct line right back to the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, and like where we've gone and what we've become, and this sort of warped, yes, hold that sort of celebrity and surface appearances have for us now. Yes. It all starts in 1980. It really, it's wild to me. It's, it's crazy, and it's so amazing that you referenced that book because Tom Cruise is in that novel too. 
He's yeah, he's in the elevator with Patrick Bateman. And I that book is really important to me. It was important in 13 ways. It continues to be an important novel for me. And uh and when I when I uh, when I read that, I was just like, oh man, that's kind of amazing. And also Jean Rees, right? So yeah. we've talked about Jean Rees and her narrators who Oh, you want to talk about some women who've had a rough go of things. Oh my gosh. It's yeah. best to take a breather in between. Like I had at one point I did sort of re read everything in one go and by one go, probably over a couple of months. And her novels are very short. And of course you start with Sargazzo, but after leaving Mr. McKenzie and like there at Quartet, there's some stuff in there where you're like, I I need to breathe. I need to go have a snack and walk around the block. And they're beautiful. But they're they're devastating. They're devastating. A little relentless too. A little yes. like because her characters don't they don't know what they don't know. I know. And you, you know, as the reader, you're sitting there going, "Please, please, just I turn know. to the left. Turn to the left. Turn to the left. Turn." They're not going to turn ever. Yeah, she was a huge, huge influence for me. Um, I mean, really, one of those novelists that you read and you're just like, oh, okay, this is, this mm-hmm. is, this is what, this is the space I love, you know, as a reader where I feel like somebody is just whispering like a really intimate, dangerous secret to me about themselves. You know, I love that kind of intimacy. And, um, and yeah, I mean, she was on my mind a lot. Um, her and her narrators were on my mind a lot when I was thinking of Belle. Her narrators are often very vulnerable to the things that Belle is vulnerable to and enchanted by like clothing, like beauty, the surface, but of course they're drowning inside, you know? (laughs) So, yeah. They're also not mean in the way like a Muriel Spark narrator can be, because sometimes, I mean, and Muriel Spark, reader for different reasons. Yeah. But there are times where her people are just mean. (laughs) I can't, what am I holding on to here? I mean, as, as devastating as a Reese novel can be, you stay for the language, you stay for the overwhelming emotion. Like all of these people who've read A Little Life, I'm like, well, you know, there's also this <laughs> yeah. woman called Jean Rees. Yeah. If you want to have all of the feels, you yeah. know, all of the feel, and move, especially when you read her in your, like your 20s and you're just like, oh. oh gosh, that's when I read her. Yeah, that's when I read her for the first time. And she holds up in yeah. a different way. There's some authors that I read when I was in my sort of teens and twenties that I really loved. And now I go back and I'm like, yep, not aging. Well, not that. Don't need to hold on to that. That (laughs) someone else can love that book. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's so true. You know, and when I revisit her, I have to say for me, she stays. And it's one of the reasons why is because it's, it's not perfect. It's not sealed. Like it's very raw actually. Um, And so it feels, it still feels alive really wildly ahead of her time, sort of the way Jane Bowles and Virginia Woolf were in the way they were not just using language, but the things that they were willing to put out publicly. I mean, Reese was writing at a moment where what she was doing would have been considered like outrageously raw. It's just too public, just too public and too messy. And all of the things that now like People put more on the internet now than Jean Rees ever put into a novel. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's 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 embarrassing. Like that, like her her narrators confess to things that are very yeah. embarrassing. Yeah, but that's why I love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the idea that Belle is a direct descendant. Oh, she is. Yeah, she is. I was, I was revisiting um, after leaving Mr. McKenzie and um, Good Morning Midnight, 
when I was. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, thinking about Good Morning Midnight for a second. I know, I know. I think that 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 narrator, I, I believe, I might be mistaken, but I believe she works in a dress shop. Yeah. I think she does, yeah. So. I, I think you are absolutely right. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. And the idea, too, though, that somehow femininity could save Belle's mother. Yeah. That sort of pops through both the backstory and the and the glances that we get through Sylvie, her her business partner or yeah. the new dress shop owner. It feels hard for her. Yeah. And that, you know, she's she's caught up in this idea that if she doesn't present herself a certain way, she won't find love. She won't find a job. She won't be able to do her thing. But none of that defines her motherhood or being a mother for her. It's all about the outside. Yes. Yes. World. Yeah. Yeah. She's got her own cracked mirror in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think it's so true. I mean, her. Her, her relationship to Belle is so, it's so fraught because, you know, she, she is also white and her mm-hmm. daughter is mixed race. Right. Um, and I think she feels like she wants, she wants her daughter to feel comfortable in her own skin, but there's only so, um, so much she can do to, I think, really occupy that skin um, with empathy because she really, it really isn't her experience. You know, and she is so wrapped up in her own surface. As much as she intends, I think, good things for her daughter, she uh it doesn't always it doesn't always go that way, you know. Her heart's in the right place, but at the same time she does really think that the right dress will fix everything that oh, yeah. Belle. Like just brush your hair, sweetheart. Brush your hair, you'll be fine. And it's like, well, actually, you gave me a hairbrush that won't even go through my hair. That's right. Yeah, no, it's true. Right. Like yeah. That. It's little moments like that. And and you can be as well-intentioned as you want to be. But yeah, she genuinely, there are moments where she really, really does not nope. understand her child and yeah. doesn't understand what her child needs. And it really, I'm trying to think of the name of the author, but there was a memoir years and years ago called Mommy Dressing. Oh, it sounds good. And yeah. And it, it I mean... And tiny, I mean, tiny word count, tiny trim, possibly out of print now. But it was a similar thing. It was this woman's mom, I think, was at one of the women's magazine oh, magazines back in the day, kind of thing, like in the heyday in the fifties and sixties, where you know that was a thing, right? Um, right. And the whole larger than life yes. mom and and like watching her get ready to go to parties, which you know pretty much happened every night because of what she did, and. Um, yeah, it's really trippy. And the author was older when she wrote it, too. She, I think she was in her 60s when she oh. finally wrote Like, it took her that long to say, I'm going to finally do that. And she'd written other books. Like, this was not her first dance. And now I'm thinking I should go back and look for it. But it is that terrain, right? Like, our mothers. Yeah. I mean, that's that's it. That's why I wanted to write the book, really. I mean, I, I feel like that Snow White story is, like, it's a tale as old as time. But occupying it from the kid's perspective and looking at a mother more magically and as and as a threat is just it's so interesting and i think it's also something that is so universal it's like the other side of the same coin uh, as the snow white story right so it was really really important to me to kind of occupy the perspective of a child and revisit that incredibly 
charged, mysterious dynamic between the mother, the mirror, and the daughter, really instrumental in pitting the two of them against each other. You know, um, I just think that mirror character is so fascinating in Snow White. So I had a lot of fun with my mirror character in Rouge. Yeah. It feels like you had a lot of fun in general. I mean, even though we've been talking about, you know, grief and aging and memory loss and transformation and lots of things that aren't necessarily the most comfortable things um, for reader or <laughs> writer, but it does seem like there's a really fantastic sense of play yeah. on the page. And whether it's pulling from, you know, the 80s wildness or the characters or whatnot. And again, I... Other people may not have the immediate response I had to Ted, which was, mm. yeah, no, I know. Oh, that, that, glad you had that. That's <laughs> Other people may be happy to see Ted. I yeah. just was very suspicious. As you should be. Yes. <laughs> that was, that was very intentional. Very, I'm, I'm very suspicious of Sylvie too. I mean, yeah. the, all of the characters ultimately do get their own arcs. Yeah. And I will say the ending <laughs> ending is fantastic I, I really didn't know because it could have gone a million different ways or at least two or three and the ending you deliver is I'm smiling as I think about it it's really good and it fits perfectly so when you're mapping this out though you've got all of the influences you've got Belle's voice you've got the other voices of the other characters yeah but how are we mapping out story as well because a lot happens in this book a lot happens. I know. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, I knew I was going to only have a handful of weeks to draft it. Um, and so, and that was over winter break between semesters because I teach. And so I, I went away to Provincetown by the other ocean, the Atlantic, and I stayed at a motel and just plotted out the first chunk of it. And just kind of thought about the story just in broad, broad strokes. And that's all I took with me to um, La Jolla, where I wrote it in five weeks. And I have to say the last hundred pages, just I wrote them in just a, a fever dream. Um, the story, once I, once I knew the first third, the rest of it just kind of unfurled very organically because all of the components of it lead you to the end. And I, I will say this, this always happens for me with a novel. I, I know it doesn't happen for everybody, but I always, I, I see the last image usually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That, oh, yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. But yeah. five weeks, I mean, that's, yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. I, mean, five weeks. I know. I know. It was exhilarating. Like it was really truly one of the greatest creative experiences i've ever had not all of them uh, you know are are like that but it was just uh it was so and uh and i was i was really inside it like deep inside it. i mean i was listening to the dream is always the same <laughs> pretty constantly you know um yeah and just smelling the roses mm -hmm. uh, going down the way of roses you know um by the ocean with the sunset and it's all there. It's all all in Rouge. So, you know, there's that state park, the beach, the, the state park at La Jolla. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And I just that popped into my head when you said you were writing in La Jolla. I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Now I can see the terrain even a little better than I could before. It was pretty amazing. I mean, every sunset was like, you know, 
roses and Tom Cruise. It was really exhilarating, <laughs> I have to say. So you've got the sense of play. You've got what you've got all of the elements essentially. But how much of that five weeks? It sounds like a lot of it was straight up muse, straight up call it flow, call it whatever you want. It just all of the pieces were there. But doesn't it take discipline too to know that this is actually the way it should be working and it's not just chaos on the page? Yeah, yeah. It takes a lot of um, giving permission, a lot of, uh, of staying seated as well, <laughs> and just like working seven hours at a stretch, which I did do so that I could get to the end. I just wanted to get to the end of the story before I left, uh, before I got on the plane back to the dark north so yeah it just i just um gave myself permission it didn't have to be perfect i just needed to kind of get the you know the bones of the story down and then yeah just trust too. trust that i was going in the right direction and that's really voice yeah it's voice believing in your voice is so key um to that kind of trust and that kind of just I'm going to just go with this idea that I have. I'm going to mm -hmm. really put space and time. Um, and once I had Belle's voice and her childhood voice came to me so easily. Right. Knew it right away. A kid voice is great because, you know, kids, you can see their emotions right away. I mean, she was just so much more raw and honest as a child. Um, as an adult, she's hiding behind all of these walls, you know. Kid voice is also technically difficult. I mean, yeah. I think. Any one of us has encountered a novel where you get a kid who sounds like a 40-year-old. Like, mm, <laughs> hi. Hello. Hello, tiny person who would never exist in real life because that's if you spent right. seven seconds around a child, you know that, mm, no. Yeah, that's no, right. No, they don't actually want to be pretend adults. They super do not. <laughs> Just, <Yeah>. nope. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. That's, again, yeah, it's an exercise and you've got to be kind of ruthless. You have mm -hmm. to. That's always my key to language is just like, it, does it sound real to me does right. it do i believe it do i believe this voice so how much of the writing is the rewriting then for you i mean you said you got the bones out five it, i mean five weeks even seven hours at a stretch five weeks is not a really long time i know i know i had i had plotted it and i i had it cooking kind of in the back of my head for a few months before i took the plane and went out there and just did it but in terms of revision yeah, I mean, I, I do a rewrite that's where I add all the layers. And that takes time, you know, that that takes another like year or so where I'm doing that. And I'm pretty dedicated to to that too. But that drafting is so crucial so that the story just feels like it has flow. Because you're right, a lot does happen. You know, there, there are a lot of kind of moving parts in it. You know, it's got noir elements to it. It's got horror elements. It's got fairy tale um there's this elaborate spa you know um so so yeah i i uh i wanted to get that all down and then go in and just really add all the layers that make it feel as rich as possible yeah because the thing that i really appreciated as i was reading rouge too is all of the elements coming together and not not once was i ever taken out of the story because suddenly Here's a noir thing happening in the context of something. Like it just, it all, I was like, okay, I'm yeah. just, gonna, I'm going to follow you down the stairs. <laughs> and it was totally worth it because all of the pieces came 
together in a way. And again, yeah, it is absolutely its voice. It's it's Belle's voice, but it's also just the overarching narrative voice of Rouge and this world that you've built. And I've said this before, but world building should not be limited to just sort of the idea of sci-fi fantasy and that kind of, like any novel is a world that has been built by a writer. And maybe it's people sitting around a kitchen table or, you know, it's a world. Yep. It it did not previously exist before someone sat down and said, hey, I'm going to write this particular bit. And Margaret Atwood, obviously a huge fan of Bunny, but also a big influence on you. I mean, you'd been reading her since you were an adolescent. Yep. And I was just like, why can't you just write the thing you want to write? I mean, clearly this is what you're doing, but why not just write the thing? Do we actually have to put a label on it? And sometimes I see people saying, well, literary fiction, oh Lord, I don't want to read the blah, blah. Like, well, actually. No, I know. I know. It's true. I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I teach fairy tales. I teach horror. Definitely Rouge touches both. Bunny touches both. Even All's Well, I would say, touches both. Um, and and those stories do come with particular expectations, right? So that's useful sometimes. They inform each other, too. I mean, there's so many horror elements of fairy tale, and there are so many fairy tale elements of horror, you know? I just feel like I... I always try with with writing, I use, I like things that are still grounded psychologically and emotionally. I really need to believe that there's something at stake in the real world for the character. Even, even if they are perceiving the world in, an, in, in a kind of magical, heightened way, still needs to feel like there are real world stakes. So I always kind of just use perception as my guide, like the character's way of seeing the world. Well, you know, it might involve bunnies turning into boys. It might involve, in Rouge, it might involve a mirror talking to you. That's the key uh, to making those different elements from different genres work in a single story. It's just thinking about the character and how they see. Yeah, there's a moment that Belle has in the dress shop that Sylvie now owns. It can be read one way. Right. As the story elements that are happening. And in another way, it can be read as the story of a young woman who's losing her mind because her mother's died. Yep, exactly, exactly. I just, I felt for everyone in that particular section of the book. There there was no good, because you could see Sylvie trying to deal oh, yeah. with the situation and completely not understanding. And Belle just thinking, oh, yeah. here I am. This makes perfect sense. And Grief is a weird thing. Grief is not meant to be managed. It's not meant to, you just kind of right. work work your way through until you get to the other side. And that yeah. takes a million different forms for a million different people. But I love the idea that you're keeping it grounded. And I never, again, I never felt like I was being told like a shaggy dog story. Do you know <laughs> what? Like I figured there was we were always going to get somewhere that I wanted to be. Right. Whether whether I was comfortable or not, I knew I wanted to be there. But the idea that we're talking about so many different layers and levels, and yet I was just like, okay, I'm going to follow you. I'm just going to see what happens. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad that you did. That's kind of what I did as a writer. I right. just said, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you, and I'm just going to see where you mm-hmm. lead me, and I'm going to trust. And that that question of like, is it really happening? Is it in her head? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a really... That's that is the tension of 
of horror. Right. And, and they're both such scary propositions. If it's all in her head, well, yeah, she is losing her mind and that is terrifying. Or if it's really happening, what does that say about the world? We don't understand its rules anymore. Right. And then what, what, what I really enjoy doing, and I think that's the thing I love so much about horror. And this book is definitely flirting with horror. It, 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 it's not, it doesn't let you have certainty. Like it could be, or it could be, they're both possible in this world and they're both terrifying. It also mimics the experience of a lot of women though. I mean, whose whose story gets believed? I mean, certainly when we're talking about physical pain, the thousands of different interpretations that happen are wild one to begin with, but the idea that someone living in their own body can't actually explain or present something that they're experienced because someone else just doesn't believe them. And I think especially too, we're living in this moment, right? Post sort of the enormous initial days of COVID, right? And long COVID and all of these things that we're learning about ourselves and our communities and whatnot. And to have that sort of pulsing, right? Through 13 ways of looking at a fat girl, pulsing through Bunny, pulsing through All's Well, and certainly pulsing through Rouge is kind of a trip. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the things, I guess, that I love writing about the most because I always feel like my experience of this thing is not the same as this other person's experience. And, and I'm always so surprised by that and then I really feel like Jesus like am I capable of perceiving reality is there something like uh, did I get this really wrong and that's always such a terrifying proposition to Mm -hmm. me and I think it's something that we do women especially but we experience that all the time when we're trying to advocate for ourselves and we're trying to report our genuine experience of something so really high and to have that feeling of doubt or suddenly have that feeling that your experience is being denied, diminished, not acknowledged. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's it's the seed of a horror of a horror novel, absolutely. It's the stuff of horror, but we're living it. What have you learned from writing your novels? I mean, is there something maybe you've taken from each book into the next or is there just what have you learned? What have you taught yourself writing these books? Oh my gosh, that's a fantastic question. I have learned be careful what you wish for, for sure. <laughs> that's yeah. fair. Yeah, um, be careful what you wish for, and I, I de- it definitely feels real for every character um, that what we desire um, so so much might not necessarily be good for us. Um, mm. m- might make us lose ourselves. What is the cost of that, of that kind of desiring, that kind of transformation? But I have to say in other ways, I just, uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't learned anything because <laughs> I, uh, I'm still addicted to skincare videos, even after all this time. I thought I was on the other side of it. I really did. And then I had to write a little piece about my former addiction. So I mm-hmm. read some of the videos mm-hmm. and I got, I thought I was going to look at them with such a cynical, like, oh, I'm done. I'm past this. I got sucked right in again. So I'm a sucker. I mean, I don't know. I think I have to be a little bit of one to to write novels anyway. I mean, I'm just, I'm capable of being enchanted, lured in, 
all that stuff. And I, I think that's okay. I think that's okay. I'll take it. As a reader, I'll take it. I mean, yeah, right. if you want to be enchanted and then I get to read the results, I'm I'm perfectly happy to have it. I am wondering a little bit, though, if this is maybe your most personal book yeah. as well. I mean, you allude to sort of your relationship with your mom in the author's note, and there's some details that just feel like they were borrowed from your own life. And certainly, I'm not saying this is autofiction. There are no mirrors and weird closets and Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise, but there are some smaller details that feel like they belong more to you oh yeah than mm -hmm. bell and i'm wondering what that was like for you i mean it's one thing to take big ideas right and channel them through and certainly you've been living with chronic pain for a long time but this feels different yeah this was different it was different and it might be part of the reason why i got so so completely immersed in it okay you know, the the eye of like the first person is already so in, enticing you know, on the page, you already feel like your eye when you're writing it. I'm sure other writers feel that way too. But that particular eye of Belle, yeah, I mean, the fact that she shared some similarities with me, I mean, she's part Egyptian, she has mm -hmm. a French-speaking mother, her mother doesn't speak French to her at home, so she's alienated from her mother's uh, side of the family, and she's also alienated because she and her mother don't have the same racial background, and it creates these just these tensions and misunderstandings. I mean, all of that is stuff that I, I've always wanted to kind of explore, mm -hmm. you know. And I mean, th I guess these things are not necessarily specific to me, but they were part of my experience. And I know that, I know that these things, language, race, <laughs> you know, your mother, they inform the way that you see yourself so powerfully. And they certainly they inform your idea of, of what's beautiful. Right. Um, and this is a book about beauty and I wanted it to be very honest, you know? And so sometimes when you want it to be really honest, you, you know, you have to, you have to go to the source. Right. Yeah. And of course you have classes to teach and we've run long and it was so much fun talking to you about your work, Mona. Thank you so much. Rouge is out now. If you haven't read Bunny, if you haven't read 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, and if you haven't read All's Well... Those are all available in paperback. Thank you again so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Hello readers, it's time for another TBR Top Off. We're going to recommend a couple of fantastic books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Rouge. I'm Mark coming to you from my Barnes & Noble in Cincinnati, and I'm joined by my book buddy, Madison. Hey, Madison. Hello, I'm Madison, joining you from my bookstore in Los Angeles. So I'm going to go ahead and have you kick things off. I know you are a Mona Awad mega fan. I'm a fan as well, but not as much as you. So take it away. Yes, I am so excited for this book. I love Mona Awad. I think she is one of the greatest writers of this current. Um, I could rave about her all day, which means... When I'm trying to find a book that could possibly compare to her, it's really, really hard. But I think I might have found one. And it is Mayfly by C.J. Lee. This is this author's debut novel. And it is, I'm reading it right now, it is mind-blowing. What I think these two authors do so, so well is their characters. So their characters are written in such an unnerving and disturbing way, but it's also so beautiful and so compelling that like they these characters will like get under your skin but like you want to keep going it's mind-boggling and i think both of these authors do that so so well 
So in Mayfly, you are following Maeve, and she's kind of, she's got the best of both worlds going on. She has light and dark. So you see her by day. She is a princess at the happiest place in the world, but then by night, she's kind of this like phantom, not necessarily sultry woman, but this woman who like haunts the Sunset Strip. You'll find her in like that smoky rundown, run-of-the-mill bar like reading a book like she's on the outside she's really really intriguing she seems so calm and collected and put together but then you get in her head because the book is from her point of view and you're just like whoa like this woman's thoughts it again is so I can't I use the word unnerving a lot because like that's what it is you're like I have never met someone who thinks like this but I'm now in this headspace and I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going. In the book, she compares herself to like a wolf and like society is full of sheep, but as a society, you wanna be like a sheep so you fit in. But at her core, she is like this wolf and you just kind of like follow her around as this inner rage like just boils and boils and boils throughout the book, just like waiting for her to pounce. The best way to describe it is she's like this coil. And you don't expect, you don't know, and you don't really, there's no lead into when it's going to like break and you're going to see that snap. And you definitely don't see that snap coming. And like when you do, you're like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> not expecting that. Thought we were having a, a normal Tuesday, but no. And I think that is just such a powerful thing for an author to do is like hide that predictability of a character. And it's something I think both of these authors do so, so well. I will give a trigger warning for this book. If you are not a fan of someone who likes gore or really descriptive, like, gory scenes, I may pass it up because it does it does get gory. It is in the horror genre. I think the gore, again, is written in a really, it's going to sound really weird, beautiful, like, prose and way. Like, she does it really, really well. And it's really, really descriptive. But because it's really descriptive, you're not a fan, might want to pass this one up. But I think this is definitely a contender for the best, my best book of 2023, which is saying a lot because Rouge is coming out. So, I mean, CJ Lead has a lot to live up to. But that is why I chose Mayfly because this character is one of the most compelling characters and such a great example of feminine rage done well. And I think that's really, really important because you don't see like an explosion of anger that's usually portrayed you see this like internal like strife and rage and you would never expect it if you met this woman on the street which is why I think Maeve Fly would pair so so well with any book by Mona Awad but I know Mark has another really 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 good pick uh, to go along with it so. and I could probably talk about Maeve Fly for a, a good chunk longer I think you're right. It gives vibes of Promising Young Woman, even like to a degree of Open Throat that I read just recently. Um, just that predatory character uh, who you get to sort of be a part of and kind of live in that space for a while. It's delicious. But I chose another delicious book that has been on my mind since I read it in hardcover. It is now recently in paperback and really hits a similar vibe to Mona Awad in that it's a book that tackles an industry that is usually very surface level and starts to unravel it in really wonderful ways. And that is the book Siren Queen by Nevo. 
I love Nevo very, very much. She's incredible. Honestly, now that it's in paperback, just go pick it up. If you see the cover, you you will be compelled to purchase it. It's beautiful. So Siren Queen pokes at 1930s Hollywood. So think about that golden age. But it sets this up in a world where studio executives are true monsters. Not necessarily the metaphorical monsters that we might be thinking about in today's era of Hollywood, uh, but actual monsters. You think about blood packs, you think arcane rituals, you think dark magic that rules the world behind the screen. The metaphors are delicate and unsettling, but very honest and perfect. Uh, we follow our main character, Luli May, who is an aspiring actress whose race really only allows for a very small and insulting number of roles. But Luli is crafty and she is tenacious and she is more than willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to be a superstar, even if it's becoming a monster herself. The whole time that I was reading this book, I was mentally begging for a cinematic screen adaptation, which I don't tend to do when it comes to novels. Um, I like to keep both of those lanes separate. But this one is beautifully written. It's cinematic. The writing is absolutely delicious. The world is bizarre, but also familiar. And Luli is a character who I will never forget. Uh, she is very strong. She is very vulnerable. And she is trying to navigate a world that really doesn't have a place for her. And to watch her succeed and climb that ladder is absolutely satisfying. So check out The Siren Queen by Nevo. But guess what? That's all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to Port Over. Please make sure to give us a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us on our socials at Barnes & Noble. Pretty simple. I'm Mark. You can follow my home store at BN Westchester. And I'm Madison. You can follow my home store at BN Events Grove. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Happy reading. Goodbye. Happy reading. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.